Good morning, Miles City. We're glad you guys are here on the last day of the year. You chose to end the year by going to church. I think that's awesome. Uh, if, you, if you recall, you might not. January 1st was also a Sunday as well. Uh, so some of you might have started the year in church and ended the year at church. And if you started and ended the year here at Miles City, you started and ended by hearing me speak. I spoke on New Year's Day and Christmas Eve, so it's a big Jordan sandwich for you guys. All right, so uh, thank you so much for being here. If this is your very first time, uh, we are so grateful that you, you came. Hopefully, uh, if someone invited you, that person is here as well. And uh, we just hope that you, you feel known and welcomed, and uh, we hope that you leave knowing Christ a little bit more than when you got here. Um, I think it's kind of cool that we are not waiting until the new year to start something new with a new series. A lot of us, we wait until tomorrow, right? You know, this past week, Barry said this, the week between Christmas and uh, New Year's is like all football and all. That's when we're like, I'm going to start my diet on January 1st, so I'm going to eat 30,000 calories each day until then. You know, we just eat all the cookies and all the sweets and all the, st- all the good stuff. And, you know, tomorrow is the day when all the new things happen. But not for us. We're going to start something new today, and it's called All About Uh, And in this series, we're going to look into the scriptures at different things that Jesus is, and we're going to challenge you to ask yourself if you are all about Jesus and what that looks like in the life of a Christ follower, what that looks like in in the life of a Christian. So what does that mean when we say all about? When I hear that phrase, all about, uh, to me it means that I'm all in on something. I'm sold out on something. I am fully committed to something. Barry mentioned being a Cowboys fan, and I do equate Uh, that with sports, because I love sports. My two favorite sports are football and basketball. When I think of people who are all about a team, uh, my football team, again, like Barry, it's not the Lions, it's not the Cowboys, though. I like the Buffalo Bills. And here's a guy who's all about the Buffalo Bills. That is what it looks like to be all about. Now, I'm a Bills fan, but I'm not all about the Bills. I don't have a Bills sombrero. I don't have a Bill's luchador mask. I don't have any of those things, actually. I also don't have arms like that. Uh, But I don't have any of those things. That guy is all about the Bills. I also like basketball, and sometimes when we're big fans of sports teams, our our rooms look like shrines. Look at this bedroom. This is a Los Angeles Lakers bedroom. Um, I cannot confirm or deny that this is Barry Martin's bedroom. He is a Lakers fan, and he is a shoe guy. So we'll ask April, but that, that could be the Martin's bedroom. I'm not really sure. Uh, but when I really think about being all about a sports team, I think of my best friend, a guy named Eric. He's currently serving in the United States Marines down in Texas. Uh, and even though he lives in Texas and is from Michigan, he is a diehard Minnesota Vikings fan. Don't know how that came about. Uh, but he did something a few weeks back that actually got him a little bit internet famous. And maybe you've seen the video and you never knew who the guy was. It's actually my best friend. Uh, so here's the story. So he's a Vikings fan. The Vikings quarterback, a guy named Kirk Cousins, uh, ruptured his Achilles and he's out for the season. They made a trade. They brought in this guy named Joshua Dobbs. And in his first game, he led them to this miraculous comeback victory. And my friend Eric decided he needed to celebrate. Now, let me tell you why he's doing this. Josh Dobbs has a thing called alopecia where he has no uh, hair on his head, even eyebrows. So my friend Eric decided he's all about Josh Dobbs and the Minnesota Vikings by doing this. There goes one. Yeah, this was picked up by an account called Barstool Sports. It was shared by... Hundreds, if not thousands of accounts, millions of people saw my friend shave his eyebrows for a football team. And the crazy part is, they kind of stink now. They're not even going to make the playoffs. And he's all about a team that didn't even make the playoffs. Fun fact, he was actually here for Thanksgiving. He was here at Mile City 
His eyebrows weren't, so it was before that. So if you met a guy uh, and you're like, Did that, is that the guy from the internet? It was him. He was here in the building a few weeks back. I'm not sure if he's fully committed or if he needs to be fully committed. I'm not sure, uh, but it's one of the things. But we know what it means to be all in. We know what it means to be all about something, something we are so passionate about, something that, that consumes our everyday, something that we can't go a day without thinking about. The question is, what does it look like to be all about Jesus? And that's what we're going to ask these next few weeks. And the good news is Jesus never tells us to shave our eyebrows or anything like that. He doesn't ask us to do anything wild. He asks us to take up our cross and follow him, which actually is a little bit more intense. But as we continue our walk through John, even though we're in a new series, we're staying in the book of John. We're not going to get halfway through and then abandon it. We're still in John. We're picking up in chapter 12. What we'll see is a woman named Mary who we just read about two weeks ago in our John journey in chapter 11. And here in chapter 12, she does something a little peculiar. She takes perfume and she pours it on the feet of Jesus and she wipes it off and cleans up his feet with her hair. And we're going to take a look at that and the verses that surround it uh, to see what Mary was all about. But before we dive into the scripture, let's go ahead and take a moment and pray together. Father, we come to you today. We are so thankful for everyone who is here. I'm thankful for those who are watching online. Uh, We think of those who couldn't be here for, for different reasons, those who are sick, those who are traveling. We ask for safety and healing in their lives. Uh, Father, we just thank you for working in our lives wherever we're at. God, I pray that as we dive into your word today, that we are challenged to be all about you. And if we find areas in our life where we are not about you, Jesus, let us change that. Move our hearts today, Lord. Lord, as I speak, I ask you to clear my mind, prepare my words, and take me out of the way. May it be all about you today, Jesus. Not all about me, not all about Miles City, but all about you as we honor you and we praise you by studying your word and speaking about it today. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bible or your John journal, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 12. Uh, That's where we're going to be picking up from. If you have the Bible app on your phone, that's how I follow along a lot of times. Also, we have the verses on the screen. We're going to start reading right here in verse 1. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Bethany is not a person. That's the place. It's the town. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment, and she poured it and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So if you've been with us uh, for a while, if you've been here following along, or if you've been watching online, uh, we finished our Lawbreaker series in John chapter 11. And so those names, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, are probably pretty familiar because in our last message in the Lawbreaker series, now we paused last week for Christmas Eve, but two weeks ago we were talking about Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And you recall that Lazarus was very sick to the point that he was dying, and Mary and Martha asked Jesus to come, and by the time he got there, Lazarus had died, but that didn't stop Jesus. Jesus went to the tomb, called Lazarus, Lazarus out, and Lazarus is alive again. Now, I want to say that even though that was John 11 and now we're John 12, this is not immediately after that. This is not the same visit. In fact, John 11:54 tells us that Jesus left for a while. He went to a place called Ephraim. So Jesus is back again visiting with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. This is not the same trip from John 11, and that's important with what we're going to talk about. 
So it's likely that he made this stop because it's six days before Passover. He's headed back to Jerusalem. So he, he made this stop along the way to visit his friends again. And he's going to see them. And so they have this dinner in his honor. Martha serves, which tracks, because what we know about Martha is they're actually mentioned a third time in Luke chapter 10. Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha. And Martha is busy serving. And Mary is busy sitting with Jesus. And Martha gets upset. You might know that story. You might not. You can go home and read Luke chapter 10. Uh, but Martha is famously missing out on the presence of Jesus. And so as all this is happening, as they're eating dinner and Lazarus is reclining and Martha's serving, Mary takes out this expensive perfume, and we'll talk about the cost in just a second. Uh, we'll talk about what it costs, and she pours it on the feet of Jesus. She pours so much of it that the entire house begins to smell like perfume. And, and I want you to highlight and, and focus on the word that she anointed the feet of Jesus. That's the word I want us to, to lean in on today is anointing. What Mary is doing is she is anointing Jesus. And she's doing something that we see in other places in Scripture. And she's doing something that maybe you've seen done in person before. James chapter 5 talks about anointing those who are sick, who need healing. But in Scripture, we can look at, at, at different times of people being anointed. It looks a little different than what Mary did, but we know that uh, Samuel anointed David when God said he was going to be the next king of Israel. We know that Elijah, with a J, anointed Elisha, with a sh sound, as his successor, as the prophet. We know that Moses anointed Aaron because he was going to become a priest. And what we find in scripture is that anointing someone, when someone anoints another, they are setting that person apart for something bigger than us, something holy or something divine. In fact, those three references that I mentioned, God instructs someone to anoint them. Those people are set apart for something holy. And what makes this instance of anointing a little different and a little unique is that Mary anoints the feet of Jesus, where normally what we see in anointing is, is the oil is placed on the head. Um, and also, we don't have any reference that God told Mary to do this. So what Mary is doing, <clears throat> excuse me, is, is an act of worship, and she's surrendering the authority in her life over to Jesus. You know, when we see Jesus visit Mary and Martha in the book of Luke that I just mentioned, what it tells us is that Mary sits at Jesus' feet while he's there, and Martha gets upset by that. And, and now she's anointing those same feet. So she sits at his feet, and then she anoints his feet. And I think there's a reason for that, because in that culture, at that time, if someone chose to become a disciple of a specific rabbi or teacher, they were said to sit at his feet. So if I followed a specific rabbi, I sat at the feet of rabbi, insert name, right? So we can see what Mary is doing by understanding the context and the history she has chosen to follow Jesus. She's saying, these are the feet that I sit at. These are the feet that I follow. I am anointing you because, yes, you are my rabbi. Yes, you are my teacher, but you are more than that. She is calling him her Lord and her king in this moment. Now, here's the thing. She's anointing Jesus as something holy and set apart. Jesus doesn't need this anointing. Jesus is holy whether we anoint him or not. Jesus is divine whether we anoint him or not. Jesus is king whether we call him king or not. Jesus doesn't need this to happen. In fact, it doesn't change anything about Jesus, but it does change the trajectory of Mary's life because she goes from saying, you are my rabbi, to you are my Lord. And that is a distinction. 
And that is a difference. What we see is that she bows to him and she cleans his feet in act of submission and service, showing that she is going to follow him wherever he takes her. Mary is all about anointing Jesus in this moment. So as we explore the text today, we're only going to be looking at 11 verses or so. I would ask, what about us? If Mary was all about anointing Jesus as king of her life, what about us? Do we anoint him as king of our life? Do we anoint Jesus in our lives? Do we set him apart? Do we bow at his feet? Do we choose to serve him? And are we consistent with it, or is it just done in a moment? Some of us bow and worship here, but then we head out the doors and we get into life and we get into trouble and we get into problems and we get into busyness, and all of a sudden we lose sight of the one that we were just worshiping not that long ago. See, worship needs to be consistent. Mary decided to anoint Jesus in this moment. Now, she didn't wash his feet every day for the rest of his life, but she did every day choose to serve and follow him. I think as we read the text, we're going to find a couple stumbling blocks that could prevent us from doing the same. See, Jesus doesn't call us to pour perfume on his feet. Jesus calls us to follow him. So if we're all about Jesus, we need to follow him every day of our lives. But there are some things that we will see that can trip us up from that. And the first thing I want to look at is going back to the first verse. Let's read it one more time. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at a table. All right. Now we just kind of move past the fact that Lazarus had died and was brought back to life. And now he's just chilling. Like he's just sitting at the table eating dinner with Jesus. How insane and remarkable is that? This man was in a tomb one chapter ago in our Bible. He was dead and buried for days. And now he's at a dinner table with the one who brought him out of life. Only Jesus could do that for him. But what we actually see in this verse, I think it's kind of important because we see so many miracles performed by Christ. We see healing. We see restoration. We see resurrection. We see Jesus do so many things. But here, not a lot's going on. See, in life, we're all going to face trials. We all are going to have problems. We are all going to have pain, sickness, loss, suffering, grief, pain, hurt. In Gwen's baptism story that we just watched, she talked about dealing with loss and struggling with that. And that's something that I'm sure a lot of us can understand and sympathize and be like, I've been there. I know what that feels like. Life has a way of beating us up and taking away things that are precious to us and tearing us down and leaving us dead. And maybe you've heard a message or two that tells you, hey, in your darkest hour, at your lowest point, at your weakest state, call on Jesus. And that is 100% true. I would tell you if you were here today and it took everything in you to get here, you made the right choice, all right? It's absolutely true, and I echo that. When you are hurting, when you are suffering, when you are in pain, you call on the Lord to deliver you from those moments, and that's what Mary and Martha did in John chapter 11. They were hurting, they were suffering, Lazarus was dying, and they said, Jesus, you need to be here, and Jesus arrived. But in John chapter 12, Lazarus isn't dying anymore. Lazarus is feasting. Lazarus is reclining. Mary and Martha aren't struggling They're just sitting back. And Jesus isn't performing any miraculous feats or anything like that. So my question is this. 
When you're in life, and, and, and thankfully we do have moments like this where nobody's sick, where nobody's dying, where things do appear to be going well, things are calm. I don't know about you, but sometimes my struggle isn't so much for getting Jesus in my urgency, it's for getting Jesus in my normalcy. You see, when things are urgent, when I desperately need him, yes, I call on him, but when life is relatively calm and life is relatively easy, am I still anointing him as the king of my every day? Sometimes life is running so smoothly and how it's supposed to go for us. In those moments, do we still call on Christ to step into our lives? Here's the question I would ask. Is Jesus anointed in the calm? Is Jesus anointed in the calm? Sometimes we run into this problem of only seeking Christ when we think we need him. Sometimes we, th- we only call on the name of Jesus when we think he needs to do something for us. When there's a problem to be solved, when there's pain to be taken away, when there's healing to be done. And we use Jesus to, to fix our problems and we think we only need him when those problems are there. But the truth is we need him every day. Because on good days, guess what the Bible tells us? All good things are from him. So we can't have a good day without Jesus. Could good days come from Jesus. So we need him to even have a good day. But the reality of it is, is this. He's responsible for the good ones and he's there in the bad ones. But are we calling on him in the calm ones? Sometimes we lose sight of Christ and his place in our lives, not in the presence of pain, but in the absence of it. The way I look at it is like this. Sometimes we treat Jesus like he's a fire extinguisher. We all know what a fire extinguisher is. We all know what it does. Chances are you all have one in your home and you probably know where it is, but you don't really need to use it all that often. In fact, we have one here at the church. It's right over there. And we only pull these things out in case of emergencies, right? Yeah, it's good to know where it is when I need it. It's important that I can find one when I need one. But I've been working here at Miles City for almost a full year now. I've been attending this church for about two and a half years now. Guess what? Even though I know where that fire extinguisher is, there's one on each side, I've never had to use it, which is good. I am the student director, so if anybody's going to need to use it, it's probably going to be us. You know, like, hey, what happened to drive? Oh, we set the volleyballs on fire just for fun, you know. But I've never had to use it. And sometimes, though, we do that with Christ. Yeah, I know where I can find him. Yeah, I know where he's at. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's good enough for me. We don't invite him into our everyday. We just invite him into our bad days. See, when you live like that, I want to ask, are you really all about Jesus as king of your life? Or are you all about Jesus just fixing your problems? Jesus came to reign, not to fix problems. Now, he loves us enough and he's gracious enough to, to help us with our problems. But his purpose is to reign as king of our lives. He's not a fix-it man. He's not a handyman. Mary and Martha called on him when they needed a miracle, yes, in John chapter 11. But here in John chapter 12, they don't need a miracle. They just invite him in. They just want to eat dinner with him. And they, and they spend time with him. And they spend, spend time in the presence of him. And Jesus doesn't do anything here. There's nobody coming back from the dead in John chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Nobody's healed, no miracles performed. He's just there. And for Mary, that is more than enough because in the calmness of that time, she decides, I'm going to anoint him as king of my life. So she pours out that perfume on Jesus and she anoints him like we read earlier. Now let's skip ahead to what happens after that. It says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I mentioned we talk about the cost of denarii is essentially one day's wages. So this oil, this perfume, 
costs 300 days' wages. You could do the math. That's almost a year's salary is what that costs. It was valuable. And so Judas says, why was this not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. First service, I tried to think of a better word here. All I can come up with is Judas is a turd, man. Like, (laughs) Judas is just the worst, right? Mary does this beautiful thing. This wonderful thing. She is showing that Jesus is set apart in her life. He is her king. And Judas is just watching it and seeing dollar signs. Dollar signs that aren't going into his pocket and he's getting mad. And he asks about the money, but he does it in a way, if you see the verse, he does it in a way that makes it seem like he's not being greedy. He just cares about someone else. Why couldn't we use this money for the poor? He doesn't care about the poor. He cares about his own desires. He cares about his own wants. And we don't see Mary's response, but Jesus responds with the next verse. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, Jesus is not saying don't give to the poor. But what he's saying is Jesus knows it's coming. Jesus knows that his time of being crucified is close. And he's saying, you won't always have me here. My days are numbered. He tells Judas, leave her alone. I love that Jesus cuts the tension in the room. Because I can tell you that would be a tense situation. I want you to picture Mary doing this. She humbly goes to Jesus on her knees. All eyes are on her. What is this lady doing? And she pours the perfume. And if anyone wasn't watching, they smell it. And they say, what's that smell? And they, they direct their attention. And they see Mary. And here she is wiping his feet with her hair. And Judas cuts off this moment of adoration and honor of Jesus with criticism. Man, sometimes when people complain about us or criticize us, it affects us, which leads to the question, is Jesus anointed in the criticism? I want to promise you something today. If you're a follower of Christ or if you're on the fence and you're thinking about following Christ, and it's not a great promise, unfortunately, but it is a promise. Here it is. When you choose to follow Jesus... There will be someone who criticizes what you say, and there will be someone who criticizes what you do. You are going to have critics in your life. I wish that it wasn't the case, but it simply is. In life, there is always someone who is going to speak against you, who is going to dog you, who is going to twist up your words and make it sound like you said something you didn't, who is going to question your actions or the reason behind your actions, and they're going to point fingers at you. And it's not fun. There are people who are going to insult you and try to hurt you and mock you and devalue you. I'm sure anyone who teaches in this church or anyone who teaches in any capacity, you could ask them, do you have any critics? And they would say, how many of them would you like to know their names? Because we've got a lot of them, all right? I've had my fair share of critics, and here's the, the, the crazy thing is sometimes who they turn out to be surprises you. Judas is the critic here. Judas is one of the 12, man. Now, we know how the story goes, and we know what Judas winds up doing, and we, knew that, we know that Judas is the one who betrays Jesus. We know all that because we have the comfort of reading ahead and knowing how the story plays out. But those who were living this, those who were in the moment, they didn't have the benefit of reading ahead. All Mary knew is she thought she was doing something beautiful for her king, for her Lord, to show her devotion to Christ, and one of the 12 disciples criticized what she did. You can't tell me it didn't sting a little when she heard that. You can't tell me it didn't cut a little deep when he criticized what she was doing. 
Anyone who chooses to follow Jesus with their life will face criticism. People who will feel threatened by the changes you're making. Sometimes your critics are people that you run with, people in your relationships with, and seeking to follow Christ means I got to get out of this and I got to stop doing this. And those people will criticize you for it. They'll call you a hypocrite. They'll call you a fake. Maybe it's people who, who will feel hurt sometimes by the things you say or do. They won't understand why you're choosing what you're choosing, so they'll lash out. People will feel angry at the, at the truth being shared. They come in all shapes. They come in all sizes, but they're here. And here's the thing. Jesus addresses this in John chapter 15, verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus says, hey, man, when you follow me, you're going to be persecuted because I was persecuted. Persecution can get a lot worse than criticism, by the way. I'm not saying that's the worst thing that could ever happen to us or following Jesus. But it still falls under the umbrella of persecution. When you actively, honestly try to, to follow Jesus and people criticize you for it, that is persecution. And Jesus is right. He had critics everywhere he went. So don't be surprised when you do too. Critics will try to tr take what you have said or done and dismiss it with their words. But just like Judas, a lot of times their words aren't baked in honesty. What Judas was saying wasn't even honest. He criticized her and he says it's because he's thinking about the poor, but he's not. And sometimes your critics will say, I'm just thinking about your best interest, but they're not. Sometimes your critics will say, well, I'm just thinking about what's good for everybody, but they're not. Your critic will say things like they're looking out for you or I'm just playing devil's advocate and they're, or I'm just correcting you. But what you'll usually find is that the heart of it is something different than what they're actually saying. Now, I'm not saying to dismiss anything anyone ever tells you. The Bible tells us we do need to be open to correction. We do need to be open to, to receive when we are doing wrong. If I am making a mistake, if I do say something wrong, I do need to be willing to hear that and accept that. In fact, I, I, as, I, as I mentioned that, I think of a lady from my old church. She would, she would write me letters sometimes, and she would correct me on what I got wrong in the message. She said, you said Ezekiel 31, but I think you meant Ezekiel 29. I'm like... I did. Awesome, you know. And you know what? She did it from a heart of humility and a heart of love for me. She loved me. And she just wanted what was best for me, so she corrected me when I was wrong. In the same way, there might be people who see you in sin or see you dabbling with sin, and they might correct you. That is not criticism. You say, well, what's the difference between a critic and a counselor? What's the difference between someone who's helping me and someone who's just hating on me? Check the source. Test the waters. If they never build you up, but all they do is tear you down, you probably don't have a counselor. You have, you have a critic. If their goal is just to tear you down, you have a critic. Don't waste time worrying about the shade that's thrown from trees that bear no fruit in your life. Don't give any attention to that. And when something isn't being said out of a place of honesty, your, your instinct is to fight back and to speak back. But I can tell you there is nothing we can say back that will be fruitful if what they are saying isn't even honest in the first place. So what's the best course of action? Our best course of action is to do what Mary did. Let Jesus handle it. Judas criticized, Mary stayed quiet, and Jesus said, leave her alone. Sometimes we just need to let our critics speak and let Jesus deal with them. But the truth is, sometimes it hurts. And sometimes it can break us, and sometimes it discourages us, and criticism causes our faith to stumble a little, little bit. If you are here today and you are struggling with that because someone has hurt you with their words, don't let critics control your faith. Let Jesus control it. Continue to anoint Jesus in the face of critics. Let's finish up the text. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, 
but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I love this passage. Because of what happened to Lazarus, people were coming and saying, is this guy the, the guy that died? They wanted to meet Lazarus. They're like, hey, are you the guy that died? Yep. What was it like? Sucked. What's it like now? Awesome. You know, like, and he points him to Jesus. And people are following Jesus because of what happened in Lazarus' life. That's why we avoid the critics. That's why we ignore the critics, because when we can point people to Jesus, we do it. And so what happens is, surprise, surprise, speaking of critics, they show up. Word gets out, Jesus drew a crowd, and surprise, surprise, again, they make plans. And surprise, surprise, again, their plans don't really make a whole lot of sense. Hey, isn't Lazarus the guy that died? Yeah, let's kill him. Well, that didn't take the first time, so I don't know why you'd think it would work this time. You know, and so they decide they're going to kill. Je- they're going to kill Jesus. They're going to kill Lazarus. They make all this plan, and that takes us to our last question: Is Jesus anointed in the conflict of your life? I started by saying that some of us keep Jesus as a fire extinguisher, and we only bring him out in the bad times, and, the, and it's the calm that we forget him as king. But for some of us, it's the opposite, and when things don't go our way. And when life does wreck us, and when life does upset us, when conflict arrives, we struggle to honor him as king. We struggle to anoint him. Life just gets too hard. The cost of following Jesus just gets too high. The problems are just too much. And so we walk away broken and defeated. Are you anointing Jesus in your pain? Are you anointing Jesus in your hurt? If you're in a pit today, If you're in a hole today, if you're in a bad season of life today, are you anointing Jesus in that moment? Some people think, well, I've sunk too far. I've gone too deep. Things are too messy. Lazarus is a real cool reminder here because whatever you're going through is temporary. Lazarus died. Barry mentioned a couple weeks ago, the death is, is important because there's nothing more final in our world than death. And even Jesus said, that doesn't have reign over me. I reign over it. Even the most final thing we know, death, could not, could not overcome Jesus. When he said, come out of that tomb. And I, I heard someone say this once. I love this. He said, Lazarus, come out. And the reason why is because if he just said, come out, all the dead bodies would have got up. He had to specify which one he was talking to. That's how powerful Jesus is. And yet, sometimes we lose sight of that power because our problems seem real big and real scary. Following Jesus means that people wanted to take his life for Lazarus. And following Jesus for you will mean conflict. But you know what we learned from from, from Lazarus, not from Jesus, but from Lazarus? That even when our very life is taken, Jesus can bring it back. If you're struggling with a relationship today, if you're struggling with finances today, if you're struggling with anointing him in the midst of all these things, understand Jesus can restore whatever is going on in your life. If he can bring the dead back to life, why do you think he can't resurrect what's going on in yours? Why do you think he can't take hold of your problems and turn them into something good? Even the ones that we make ourselves. Don't let conflict in life keep you from anointing Jesus as king over the conflict. Now, in this particular passage, Mary and and Lazarus, they're not guilty. They didn't do anything wrong. They didn't create the conflict. They just find themselves in the middle of it. They just spent time with Jesus, and they honored him. And they still saw critics. And they still saw conflicts. Sometimes you'll see those things even when you're innocent in the situation. But that doesn't mean we should stop anointing Christ. Because here's the truth. We're not all fully innocent. We might be innocent in a specific moment. 
or a specific time. But we're not all fully innocent. Sometimes the conflict we see is a result of our own sin, our own mistakes, and our own choices. The good news is Jesus didn't come to just be king of the sinless. He came to be the king of the sinners. So here's what I want to remind us. Is Jesus anointed in the calm of life? Is Jesus anointed in the criticism of life? And is Jesus anointed in the conflict of life? There's a lot of people in the room today, and the truth is we all came carrying different things. We all have different baggage. Some of you are here, and life is going well. Life is good. Life is calm. Have you been anointing Jesus as king of the calm? Some of you are here today, and, and you're struggling with critics. You're struggling with what people are saying to you or about you because of the choices you're making in your faith. Continue to anoint Jesus as king despite what they say. Some of you are here, and you've got so much conflict going on. You're dealing with health issues. You're dealing with, with marriage issues, relationship with issues, parenting issues, church issues, every issue you could think of. Like, I've got so many issues, I've got a subscription, man. I've got all of them. Here's the deal. When it comes to conflict, there is no conflict so great that Jesus can't work in the midst of it. So are you anointing him as king through your conflict? Just like Mary anointed him, we have the opportunity to lay down our pride, surrender to Jesus, and commit our lives to him. Now you might say, why would I do that? And the best answer I can give you is because that's what he did for you. When Jesus said, you won't always have me with you, he knew what was coming. He knew that he was about to lay down his life. We just finished celebrating his birth with Christmas. But without his death and resurrection, we would still be without hope. If he just came and showed us what a sinless life looked like and said, peace, I'm out of here. He would have showed us what we're missing, but he didn't bridge that gap. By dying for us, and conquering death and conquering sin and rising again and leaving an empty tomb behind, he bridged the gap so that when we anoint him as king, we can have relationship with him. That's why God made us. God made you to have a relationship, but our sins separate us from God and our sins can't be erased by good deeds. Some of us think, well, I did something bad, I'll make up for it here. No, that's not how sin works. You just can't get it out of your life. The only thing that can erase sin is what Jesus did on the cross for us. And paying the price for our sins, he died for us. And he rose again. And if you put your trust and your faith in him, you will have an eternal life with him. That's what the gospel is. Maybe you're here today and you've never done that. Or maybe you're here today and you've done that, but you're inconsistent in your walk with him. Jesus gave up his throne in heaven to come to us. He gave up his life on the cross to save us. What are you going to give to him? Would you pray with me? And first, I'd like to pray for those in the room who maybe have never made that decision, have never taken that step in faith. And you say, Jordan, I, 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 want to, I want to anoint Jesus and make him my king. Here's the good news. Jesus did all the heavy lifting. When he died on the cross, it was for you. When he conquered death, it was for you. What do I have to do? You have to call on his name. The book of Romans tells us that if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that he is Lord, that he died for us and that he rose again, we will be saved. So here's all you have to do. Pray this prayer with me. And I want you to understand it's not the words that we say that saves us. It's Jesus who saves us. But maybe you don't know what to say, so just pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I come to you today. I lower myself and I surrender my life to you. Jesus, I seek forgiveness of my sins. 
I humbly accept your death on the cross. I believe that you died for me and I trust that you still live and you rose again. Enter into my life, Lord. Forgive me and help me to follow you. As we continue to pray, Lord, help us to anoint you every day. Help us to anoint you in the calm. Help us to anoint you in the conflict. Help us to anoint you even when the critics get loud. Father, may we anoint you every day. As we enter into a new year, may it be the year that we anoint you king over all 365 days. Actually, it's a leap year, Lord, 366 days of the year. May we anoint you through all of them. Give us the strength, the courage, and conviction to honor you, seek you, and serve you. In your name we pray, amen. Can we give it up for anyone who made Jesus their Savior today?